Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of For What It's Worth. I think we're up to episode eight, uh, and as you've noticed, there is no rhyme or reason to when these things come out. I just wanted to give you a little heads up. My life is absolutely upside down at the moment, uh, not only personally and professionally, but uh, you know, emotionally, psychologically as well. Let's just throw that in there. Now, most of what's happening in my life is good. I will share the details when I can share the details. There is a little down. Uh, I have been in sort of a health trough for the last month or so, maybe longer. Sort of a slow downward de-evolution of my healthy status. Um, I kind of suspect it's the Lyme, uh, the residue of Lyme disease or the return of Lyme disease or whatever. But not to fear, I'm here. I know many of you are out there cautiously anxiously waiting in the dark, burning candles and, and hoarding canned beans, uh, wondering if I was ever going to come back with another episode. But hey, don't fear. I'm still here. It's a Saturday morning. I am not uh, re uh, recording from the palatial high-tech compound that is Shifter. I'm recording from a backwater known as Northern California. Uh, boy, this place, if they could only get their technology straightened out, it might actually be a decent place to live. So I've got another episode today. It's kind of weird. It's kind of all over the place. Um, I do feel good today. I did an hour of yoga this morning. So for whatever reason, I, at the moment, feel great. And uh, that's the thing with Lyme and the residue of Lyme is uh, you've got to take advantage of the times when you feel good because there will be the other times. So I've got four or five points today. They're literally all over the place, but I think... Um, they're all critically important to your survival as a human being. Now, number one, we're going to go back to our theme of heroes. And I've got a few heroes in here today. I'm going to start with two. And uh, the first is a woman named Laura Poitras, P-O-I-T-R-A-S. And you might know her. She's a documentary filmmaker. You might know her from her film called Citizen Four, which was about Edward Snowden, which I believe won the Academy Award for Best Documentary. And the thing is, uh, I'm going to talk about whistleblowers here in a second, but um, Poitras, whether, whether or not you like whistleblowers or not, or you like this story or not, it doesn't matter. I'm just talking about the film itself and the fact that what it takes to be a documentary filmmaker, especially an investigative documentary filmmaker today, is really, uh, it's not easy. And I believe Poitras actually lives in Berlin now because she, was, she kept getting detained coming in and out of the United States. Um, even though she's American, she kept getting detained and hassled and uh, detained for no reason and then interrogated and all that. And she finally realized, like, hey, the government doesn't like the films I'm making and I've got to get out of here. Now, the flip side is I hear Berlin is awesome. So uh, maybe that wasn't such a bad trade-off. I'm guessing she was from the Northeast, lived in the Northeast. And uh, it's not like I don't like the Northeast of America. My wife is from there. I go there every year at least once or twice. Uh, but Berlin seems really cool. And I love Germany. I like Germans, too, for the most part, except for the woman at uh, Köln who yelled at me when I checked into my hotel because my plane was late. She somehow blamed that on me. But I've not held it against you, Germany. Even though I ate some strange meat thing at a restaurant in Köln, I still don't know what it was. Maybe that's why I'm sick. I don't know. Anyway, moving on. So Poitras is a documentary filmmaker. She has something called Field of Vision, which is sort of a crew of filmmakers. If you haven't checked these out, uh, this crew out in this association or organization, check it out. They're pretty interesting. And for those of you out there making investigative documentary films, man, keep going. I can't imagine how difficult that is to put a film like that together. I mean, if you just look at the legal ramifications of what you're doing, that's, I would just say, nope, I'm, I'm too tired. I'm not going to do that. So anyway, Laura Portress is my first hero. My second hero is Alex Trebek, the host of Jeopardy, who apparently is pretty ill himself. Um, I believe he's got some sort of pretty nasty uh, health situation going on. 
Now, I don't watch Jeopardy. I've seen it a few times. Obviously, it's impossible to avoid if you live in the United States. I have a friend who actually worked on the program as a cameraman for decades, um, but I was never like a watcher of Jeopardy. But I want to reach out uh, and call Alex Trebek a hero because I think he is. And the thing is, he, he made Americans think. And I think that that in itself is worthy of hero cause. But I want to relay this through a personal story about my family in particular. So my father managed, after going to military school, because he was such a he was such a crazy guy that his parents sent him to military school in Indiana. <clears throat> and he survived military school. And he went on to be thrown out of three universities, three four-year huge universities, all of which you know uh, immediately by name if I was to name them. He literally got thrown out of all three, asked not to return. That is no easy feat. So when it came to the, the classic education, my father was an abject failure. Uh, he was a great businessman for whatever reason. He had a head for business, and that's what he eventually ended up doing with his life, amongst other things, ranching, business, uh, competitive shooter, rifle, pistol, shotgun. That's another story for another day. Um, but he was a reader. And for those of you who read, you'll understand like what that does for you in terms of your general education. Uh, and I want to relay this through Jeopardy. So my father was a really easy guy to get going. So I could push his buttons, my sister could, my brother could, my mom could. He was so easy to get going, and we were just merciless. And in my family, there really are no rules about what can be done and not done, what can be said or not said. It's all fair game. And so, like, we taught my nephew, K-Man, when he was little, to call my mom, his grandmother, an old bag. So he would, like, run in the room and say, you old bag, and then he would take off running. And, you know, we thought it was funny. She thought it was funny. She still does. We still call her that. And she talks about getting older. And I steal a line from a movie I can't remember, but I, I say, Mom, you know, just as long as you live long enough to be a burden on all of us, that kind of thing. So, or hurry up and check out so we can get our inheritance kind of thing. Uh, you know, everything's fair game. So Dad, uh, unbeknownst to my sister and I, uh, was a Jeopardy Jedi. So one day we're at home and we're watching, the, we're all in the same room for whatever reason and the TV's on and Jeopardy's on. And my dad's like, oh, let's have a little competition. And I was just talking shit nonstop. Like, hey, dumbass, you got thrown out of three schools. I'm the one that got the college degree. I'm the best student in the family, blah, 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 blah. And he's like getting irate. And my sister's piling on like good siblings do. And then the game starts. And my dad proceeds to put a beat down on my sister and I that was kind of like an early Mike Tyson fight. It would be like Mike Tyson fighting your dad. You know, it was brutal. We were taking body shot, headshot, body shot, headshot. There was not a category he did not know. There was not an answer he did not know. He knew everything. And then he would look at us. Trebek would announce, say the, the answer, and my dad would look at us and give us the benefit of the doubt. He would give us time to respond, and we never responded. And then he would look at us like, you dumbasses. And he would pull the answer out of thin air. And I thought, holy crap, how does he do that? How does he know this stuff? And it was obscure. That is why I think Alex Trebek is a hero. And I think that is what a reader can do to a person who literally can't handle school you can still get your free education out there. So that is point number one today. Two heroes, Laura Poitras and Alex Trebek. And a third minor point for my father for putting a beat down on me and, uh, and proving what you could uh, accomplish as a reader. Okay, so moving forward here, point number two, I want to talk about a piece of equipment right now that I'm kind of starting 
to Jones for, and I'm hoping that someone out there can talk me off the ledge, but I have a specific reason why I want this piece of equipment. So as you know, my primary uh, system for making pictures today is the Fuji uh, X-T2. No, I've not upgraded to the 3. I probably, you know, it's probably a better camera. I just, you know, the, with the frequency I shoot and what I'm using the cameras for, the, the X-T2 is fine. I, there's not really any drawback to that camera that I can that I can think of. So eventually, I probably will. I'll probably donate the bodies that I have now, get an XT3, whatever, or wait until the XH2 comes out because I do really have a need for in-body stabilization for motion, especially moving into the future. And again, I'll share my future plans with you at some point when I can after I'm a little bit more established. But uh, there is a piece of gear. So we all know that Fuji is coming out with a 100 megapixel camera, right? Which is, I don't even know what it looks like or what it's based on or whatever, but it's a 100 megapixel camera. Now, a part of me says, wow, that's a great thing. 100 megapixels. That seems like a lot. I'm not a math guy, but wow. Okay. I have a 24 megapixel camera now. So 100 seems, is it better? I don't know. The other part of me says, Jesus, where am I going to store those files and how am I going to convert them? And what kind of computer do I need to handle that kind of stuff? which I have to buy a new computer in the, in the near future anyway. Ooh, that could be another good point, because I don't know if I'm buying Apple or not. So anyway, the camera, I'm not after the 100 megapixel camera, because I believe it's going to be about $10,000, and there is just no way in hell I can afford that, or I don't need a $10,000 camera. But the 50 megapixel medium format Fujis are very interesting to me. Now, they're interesting for, for a couple of reasons. One I can share, another reason I can't share quite yet, something I'm going to do in the future photographically. But I was a medium format shooter for, for a long time. I was a Hasselblad, uh, primarily using a Hasselblad for all of my, my professional, quote, commercial work. For the last decade of my career, I bought a $65 Hasselblad, believe it or not. So let me just back up a tiny bit here. About, God knows when this was, 15 years ago, um, Film was dying. All the equipment was on the market, used every brand you could imagine. Just the, the market was flooded with this stuff. Now, when I worked for Kodak in the late 90s in LA, I knew a woman named Susie Gross, who was the Hasselblad rep. And Susie was and is really cool. I don't know what she's doing now, actually. But she always had the latest, greatest Hasselblad stuff. And I would always look at it and just be like, God, I want that. But it was so expensive. I couldn't afford it. And so I just never got one. I used other kind of cheaper medium format stuff, but I never had a blot. Then digital arrives. Boom. Everybody goes crazy. They dump all their film stuff. And a couple of years later, I go on b and I'm sorry, not B&H. What's the one in Atlanta? The used gear in Atlanta. Anyway, I can't remember, but it's out there. It's huge. And I'll think of it and probably right after I'm done recording. Anyway, I go on there, and I see a Hasselblad 501CM with a back and a finder and a something else, and it was $65. And I'm like, there's no way in hell. And so I called, and the guy says to me, look, even though it's bargain, bargain equipment, we don't sell it unless it's fully functional. So I bought this thing, and I loved it, and it became my primary camera for 10 years. Now, shortly thereafter, I thought, well, I better have a backup because this thing is pretty old. So I bought a second one. I bought a 503CW that would take a digital back. And then I use that as my backup, and I, I still have that camera, I think. I have one of them. I can't remember which one I have. I gave one of them away. Now, of course, all the Hasselblad stuff and the film stuff is expensive once again because the millennials have come along and said, look, you know, the digital stuff's fine, but we kind of want to learn the process and slow down and learn what sort of our ancestors did, thankfully. And now film is making a resurgence of sorts. 
So I was a medium format person, and the one thing about the Fuji X-T2 is it's definitely not a medium format camera. It doesn't create a file like that. It doesn't make you think that way. It's just, you know, it's too, it's very small, very light, very quick, which is not what a medium format camera is. So I'm looking at the Fuji 50 megapixel cameras, and I am looking at the rangefinder, and then the other one, I don't even know what you would describe it, but the, the other one, not the rangefinder. And I'm like, Jesus, I could use one of those because it would replace my Hasselblad. Because again, this X-T2 is just not a replacement for my Hasselblad. So someone talked me off the ledge. Does anyone out there have this camera? Does anyone use this camera? And if you have this camera, are you one of those people who just has it and talks about the quality of the file and then shoots like pencil holders in your office? Or are you someone who actually uses this on assignment out in the real world? Because that is what I need it for. My pencil container in my office is impressive, no doubt. But I need this to be in the field and I need to work with it in real time on real assignments in the field because I have uh, an idea for something in the future that um, I think many of you are going to like and I'm hoping that many of you will participate in this with me in the future. So that's all I'm going to hint at right now. So Fuji 50 megapixel, I'm guessing the rangefinder model is the one that I want, but I don't know. You tell me, what the hell do I want? Do I want the other one or do I want the rangefinder one? I don't know. Preferably what I would prefer is that Fuji loaned me this for an extended period of time. Because after all, I am a photographer and there is nothing better than free, right? If it's free, it's for me. That's our, that's our motto. And yes, I'm wearing all black right now from head to toe. Literally, I'm not joking, I am. I don't normally do this, but I am doing a photo, sort of pseudo-photo related recording. So yes, we love everything that's black and I'm wearing all black. My tripod, my microphone, my iPad, and my recorder are also black, as is the coffee cup to my right and the table that I'm recording from. Uh, I'll just leave it at that. Okay, moving on, point number three. Bear with me here. Totally unrelated, but I made an observation last night, and it was like getting kicked in the neck. So I'm 50 years old, and I would describe my generation as the 80s. I would probably put myself in that, you know, I grew up in the 80s, uh, the John Hughes, 16 Candles sort of era kind of thing. But I was thinking about actors, actresses, and uh, let's go back to my generation. Now, you would think, I'm 50 years old, you would think that the number one most important, most significant actor of my generation would be De Niro or Pacino. Let's say those two. There's probably more that I'm leaving out. But, you know, it's hard to miss with those guys. You know, they've got, even though they were making films prior to that, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, they're still making films. You know, De Niro and Pacino, when you think actor, those are the guys that sort of jump out at you as like, holy cow, these are the guys. But I am going to offer a counter opinion here because I think if you're looking for the influential actor of the 80s, these guys aren't even close to the guy that I'm going to name because I'm going to give you seven different films as to why this guy stomps De Niro and stomps Pacino. And there is no doubt that you cannot, you cannot argue this. I am absolutely positive because when I start ticking off these films, you are probably going to be on your knees in the corner lighting candles to a shrine of this person that I know you have hidden in your office. So I think without the shadow of, beyond the shadow of a doubt, the most significant actor of my generation is Patrick Swayze. And I'll tell you why. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you two gifts here. Just two Burnham, Burnham, Burner movies, if you will. I think I saw both of these, but I didn't particularly like either one. But they were huge box office successes. Dirty Dancing and Ghost. 
okay? I don't remember anything about those, right? I probably saw them at some point in my misguided childhood, but I don't remember them. But what I do remember, and what you remember, and what you will undeniably say are three of the best movies, if not the best movies you have ever seen in your cinematic history. Number three, Red Dawn. Now, don't even bother with the remake of Red Dawn. It's so bad you can't get through the opening credits. It's just awful. It's like the remake of the number one film I'm going to talk about. So Red Dawn, Soviet Invasion, Colorado, Wolverines, C. Thomas Howell, Patrick Swayze, Charlie Sheen. I mean, come on, right? That's undeniably cinematic bliss. Number two, Roadhouse. I know, putting Roadhouse at number two on any list is blasphemy. Um, This, by the way, is on Netflix right now or Amazon Prime. If you haven't seen Netflix, I don't ever want to talk to you ever again because you're not worth knowing. This film is, I don't know, if you were going to shoot the 1980s into space for the alien species and you wanted one thing to represent us as a culture, it would be Roadhouse. I don't even know where to begin. Not to mention Sam Elliott co-stars. And Sam Elliott is, if not, is he's fighting with Lenny Kravitz as the coolest man to ever walk the face of the earth. So Roadhouse number two and number one, obviously, Point Break. Not out to Catherine Bigelow, female director, awesome. She also did Hurt Locker. Point Break, Vicondios Bodhi, not only Patrick Swayze, but Keanu Reeves as Johnny Utah. The single greatest thespian performance in the history of cinema was the combination of those two men that formed some sort of mega storm over Hollywood. Now, they did a remake of Point Break, and if you watch more than 30 seconds of it, you're going to win the Nobel Prize because it is horrible. It's an insult to filmmaking in general. Sorry for everyone involved in that film. It just was terrible, right? That's what happens when you give a computer to a guy making a film instead of a pencil and paper so they can write a script. Uh, But now you might be thinking, I don't care about Point Break, Roadhouse, or Red Dawn, Ghost, and Dirty Dancing. Like, what else did he do? Well, I'll tell you. He did a film called Next of Kin, which my brother and I love to quote because it was simultaneously horrific and awesome. Uh, Liam Neeson is also in this, and I can't remember who the third brother is or character is. I can't remember. Also famous, whoever that person was. Bill Paxton, maybe? I don't know. And finally, the film with a guy who looks like me, Youngblood, with Rob Lowe, about hockey in Canada or something like that, or northern U.S. Or If you haven't seen these films, stop what you are doing and run to your local blockbuster video and pick up the latest beta or VHS tape of these things and and do yourself a favor and welcome yourself to the modern age. Anyway, I just want to throw a shout out. Patrick Swayze died a couple of years ago, I believe. Rest in peace. Um, The guy was amazing. And I never actually thought about this or gave him credit until last night when I was browsing through either Amazon Prime or Netflix and I saw Roadhouse. And my my right finger just immediately flew to to the iPad and said, you got to start watching this. And then like halfway through the movie, I was like, what the hell am I doing watching Roadhouse on a Friday night in NoCal when I could be out at some tech bar discussing, I don't know, IPAs or something like that. Anyway, that was my fourth point today. And uh, I'm trying to figure out what else I want to go here. Do I want to add another point? Or uh, So we had Heroes, Laura Poitras, and Alex Trebek. We had, do I buy the Fuji 50, the 50 megapixel? Or better yet, does Fuji loan it to me long term? Yeah, probably not going to happen. And then number next point was about Patrick Swayze being an amazing actor. So another small thing that I had on my list today was about uh, climate change. And I'm just going to leave it 
at this, and then maybe I'll hit whistleblowers here at the end just for a second. But climate change, I, again, I don't care whether you believe it or you don't believe it. It's become this political phrase instead of a scientific phrase, and so I'm not talking about that. But what I'm talking about is observational and earth and species changes. And you can talk about this in whatever, whatever, whatever title you want to talk about this with. So if climate change makes you uncomfortable, then – but I just want to talk about observations. So a friend of mine grew up in Laguna Beach, and um, one of her family members was a skin diver, one, a person that sort of pioneered this, uh, this sport, if you will. And there are pictures of him pulling uh, lobsters out of just off the coast of Laguna that are literally the size of a small child. And you're like, wow, those are pretty interesting. And then you talk to people in Laguna today, and they're like, yeah, those are gone. And, and really, the lobsters in general are gone. And I'm like, wow, that's interesting. My wife recently went to Mexico, and the images that she had, some of the images when she came back, and she wasn't there to make pictures. She was there teaching something else, and uh, were these pictures of pongas or the boats that the Mexican fishermen go out in, which are sort of long, narrow boats, single engine on the back. And these guys are having to go so far offshore to find fish that they're in a lot of danger because instead of going 5, 10 miles offshore like they used to, they're going 25, 30, 50 miles offshore in these pongas, which is just terrifying. And if you look at the section on this site called Reed, there was a book I read, uh, I featured a couple of years ago that called like something like 468 Days. It was about a Mexican fisherman and his ponga whose boat conked out and he got caught in the wrong current and it sucked him across the ocean and he was in this boat for like 400 days by himself, washed up in the South Pacific and survived. Talk about a total badass. He's a hero as well. And then also, so we've got lobster disappearing in Laguna. We've got pongas having to go further offshore. I grew up, at least in part, in Wyoming. And during the, the time that I grew up in Wyoming, summers there were completely and utterly unpredictable. The house was at 8,000 feet, and we had snow in July. That was not uncommon. And the temperature would be, you know, 75 and sunny, and these storm fronts would roll in, and it would drop below freezing, and you'd get hail and snow. And in the winter, the only real way to get from our place to town was a helicopter because there was so much snow. They would close the 280. Okay, wow, my uh, batteries died in the middle, so that might have sounded like the end of the earth, what just happened. I don't know, but I was talking about Wyoming as a kid. So um, this is basically a point about climate change or whatever you want to call it, or if maybe it's real, maybe it's not. I, of course, believe in climate change, but I know that that word has become so politicized that people just go f freak out when they hear it. But what I'm talking about is like... Uh, observational uh, observations about species and the earth that I have seen since I'm since I was a kid the first was talking about a friend in Laguna whose father used to get lobsters off the coast those are gone uh, the pongas in Mexico the fishermen having to go further 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 offshore overfishing of the species and as a kid in Wyoming the weather was really inclement year-round. We'd have snow in July. Uh, winters were really bad. You had to have a chopper to get to Laramie at, at, at times, and they would close the 287, which is the highway from between Fort Collins and Laramie. And, you know, the snow, the snow fences along not only our tiny road to get back to the ranch, but 287 are legendary. These things are—and I just photographed them a couple of years ago. But they don't get that snow anymore. And it, it does snow there still, obviously, but not nearly what it was before. And I remember talking to someone when I was a kid, and he pointed up at the top of the mountains, and he said to me, he said, that's the future of ranching right there. And I said, what? And he goes, snow. He said, that water is going to be more precious than oil because we're not getting what we used to get. And we out here are still getting it, and we're going to sell it to you guys in California or Arizona or New Mexico or whoever needs it. And so the, these observations are 
it's not, I don't think that these are disputable facts. Um, the same thing could be said about the smog in Los Angeles. When I lived in the city of Los Angeles, I got bronchitis or walking pneumonia every year that I lived there. And my respiratory specialist said to me, you need to leave Southern California. There is no way that you can be healthy and live here because we're too polluted. And he said, don't listen to people that tell you to move close to the coast because all you have to do is look out over Catalina Island when the Santa Anas are blowing and you'll see that that layer of coffee over the ocean is what you're breathing every day. So to me, it's impossible to think that we can do this, put this stuff, these pollutants into the atmosphere over and over and over again and not have some sort of effect, right? I mean, is smog... A good thing? No, it's not a good thing. It's a bad thing. And I look at Orange County now, and man, there are days when I can't see Saddleback Mountain from my house in Costa Mesa, which as the crow flies is probably 10 miles, and the smog is so bad that I can't see the mountain. So obviously, humans are the people that are making the smog. We're the people that are taking more lobster than there are. We're the people that are taking more fish than than we should be taking, etc., this is the point, the point to me that's interesting is that I think even these topics have become so political that we no longer have the ability to sit down and have a conversation about it. And that to me is the, uh, the joke is kind of on us because it's not like the impacts of this are going to happen to another species somewhere else. They're happening to us. And this is one of the really kind of revelatory things about our uh, humans in general is that we have the ability to do this. And my point with this is that I think all of us, if, we, if, if everyone on this podcast came to my house in Costa Mesa and looked out at Saddleback Mountain on a smoggy day, I don't think any of us would be able to look at that and say, I don't see, I don't see any smog. And I don't think any of us would be able to say, well, that just smog just mysteriously appeared. I think it would be pretty easy to connect the dots of saying, okay, this is the land of the automobile. That is an automobile-created cloud of smog, right? And I'm part of the problem. I'm driving my automobile in this stuff. So it's not like I'm an innocent uh, bystander here. But for some reason, we've gotten away from the ability to do that. And I kind of look and think to myself, wow, if we, America, United States is still just this remarkable place, right? We, we are doing some of the most interesting things in the world. Even, even while being in this state of like being so politicized that we can't even have a conversation. And my point is, imagine what we could do if we just discarded all of this political nonsense and just began to talk as fellow human beings, fellow neighbors, and said, hey, you know what? Let's, um, obviously, nobody wants to breathe that stuff, so like, how do we fix it? Let's fix it. And man, that would be, I think we could easily fix it. But I, we're still a long, long, long way away from this. And I'm hoping that at some point in my lifetime, we hit rock bottom. And I think we'll hit it sooner as opposed to later. I hope we really, really, really hit rock bottom. And that sounds terrible. But I don't really see any other way that, that we come out of the sort of downward spiral that we're in. Um, I think humans have this amazing ability to, um, to do things that go against their, better, their own self-interest or health. And um, I think at some point you bounce off the bottom and you come back and say, okay, that was a weird period. Let's admit it was a weird period. And then let's uh, shake hands and, and keep moving forward. And I'm hoping that's where we're at now, but, uh, but time will tell. So thanks for listening to this strange little podcast. You probably heard some Eagles music in the background. That was the last song I heard because I'm in a house where there's music on. Yes, my batteries died. Um, yes, uh, you know, I didn't have a complete and total plan here. But you know what? I love doing these. And so I just, I had a few minutes of uh, open time and I thought, man, I'm going to do another one. If you've got topics out there that you want me to talk about, 
unlikely. But if you do, let me know. I had other topics on my thing today. I had something about Flowergeddon, which is what was happening in California, but that was such a uh, you know beaten down story over the time. And the real gist of my story about that was about nature versus Instagram. And Instagram is winning in a big, big way, sadly. But anyway, I'll come back with some of these topics. Um, I've, I didn't really mention a lot about whistleblowers, but we can hit that another time. I think it's a pretty interesting topic that obviously has uh, polarized a lot of people as well. But I appreciate you joining Think about the heroes. Tell me about the Fuji. Go watch every single Patrick Swayze film you can get your hands on. And I will talk to you in the near future with another episode. Thanks, kids.